Would you please open up your Bibles to Luke 10? And please stand as I read God's word. I will read a passage known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please help me to make it clear based not on my own interpretation, but on your authority and through your indwelling spirit. Amen. On December 24th of 1914, in a part of Belgium known as Le Bois de Plexter, World War I was raging. It was trench warfare. The 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment was entrenched just yards away from the German trenches. They'd been firing back and forth at each other for months. The casualties were astronomical. But as the evening of Christmas Eve drew near, the bullet slowed to a complete halt. And one of the strangest wartime events ever occurred. Both sides came together to celebrate Christmas as one. And while the war went on to claim millions more lives over the next four years, for one evening, soldiers on both sides broke bread together. And the British machine gunner Bruce Bairn's father wrote this about that night in his memoir. There was not an atom of hate on either side. Can we admit that sometimes it feels like we are at war? We have our banner unfurled, they fly their flag. There are big, powerful voices speaking over us, 
bullhorns on either side calling us to take no quarter. The church is seen as an existential threat to their very identity. And we see their flag flying over our public schools as a claim of victory over our children. Spiritual warfare, Satan worship, bigotry, hate, the rhetoric is running as hot as it possibly can. Both sides claim that the fate and safety of children hangs in the balance. The argument on the one side is that denying children their true identity will lead to mental illness, depression, and suicide. Any attempt to discuss an alternative view is seen as a conversion therapy, equated with crude experiments from the 1960s to treat same-sex attraction with barbaric electroshock therapy. On the other side, we see manipulation, obscuring of the truth, preying on children's insecurities, accusations of grooming for sexual abuse, pushing hormone therapy leading to sterilization, and invasive surgery leading to mutilated bodies. Boy, oh boy, are the battle lines drawn. It's all amplified by social media to an absolute fever pitch. Make no mistake, the online vitriol spills over into the physical world. The vitriol is amplified on both sides by making assumptions, casting aspersions, assigning motives, and just a total inability to reach across the divide to have a civil discussion. How can we possibly start to love our neighbor when we can't even speak with them? We don't even speak the same language at this point. That is the challenge before us. Let's see if the Bible has anything to say about addressing this challenge. Here's the basic logical thread that I want to follow to tackle. One, should we really love our neighbors? If no, then we can all head to the picnic early. But if yes, then who are our neighbors? And are members of the LGBTQ community really our neighbors? If no, again, we'll head out of here early. But if yes, then what does that look like? How can we love our LGBTQ neighbors? What does it look like? It's a pretty straightforward structure. I hope it makes sense to everyone, so let's jump in. First question, should we love our neighbors? Well, in our passage, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, no less, someone who studies the scriptures, the law of the Old Testament. He asks him the following question, verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man's a lawyer. We're told he's testing Jesus. What does it all boil down to? What's the main takeaway? Make it snappy, if you would. And Jesus answers him, well, you're the lawyer. You tell me, what does the law say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? That's verse 26. Well, the lawyer knows his stuff. He answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he nailed it. Verse 28, Jesus tells him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the answer to our first question, should we love our neighbor, is a pretty resounding yes. It's right up there with loving God. So sorry, we can't go home just yet. But on the flip side, we're flying through these questions, right? One down already. Both Jesus and the lawyer are on the same page here. No doubt about it. Yes, we must love our neighbor. So what about our second question? Who is our neighbor? Well, let's read on because verse 29 tells us that the lawyer has the same thought. We read, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Why would this justify him? Well, there's an assumption in the question, right? Surely, you mean those who are like me, right? Like my neighbors are my fellow Israelites, right? And this is an important consideration because we can fall into the same assumption. We can assume that we are to love those within the church. But we are to love our neighbors, where our neighbors are everyone outside of the church, anyone who does not profess Christ, who is not a Christian. And that is everyone from your next-door neighbor to your own family members, your friends, co-workers, acquaintances. But someone may be tempted to push this a little further, and based on the heightened rhetoric we mentioned earlier, they might say, well, the LGBTQ movement is our enemy. You cannot possibly claim they are our neighbors. Now, in our passage, Jesus answers the lawyer with a parable. And we'll spend some time unpacking this parable because it's rich and insightful. But I want to cut right to the chase and give away the answer as clearly and as resoundingly as possible. And for that, I'm going to go to a different quote of Christ's. In Matthew 5, we'll spend a fair bit of time in Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But on verse, in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And in verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. See, I just want to cut right through any temptation we may have to find ourselves a loophole as the lawyer is trying to do, and assure you there is nothing anyone can do to disqualify themselves from the status of your neighbor. And I know some things are so familiar that we can lose sight of the original shock value. But take a quick second just to weigh how radical it is to say, love your enemy. And tuck away this question. Just keep it in the back of your mind for now. We'll loop back to it later. But if you are to love your enemy, then who is there to fight? But for now, let's go back to our text. I want to dig into it because Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is where Jesus not only effectively demonstrates that our neighbor is not limited to the family next door, is not limited to those we like or agree with. In fact, he pointedly makes the case that this someone we may disagree with strongly, someone we may even consider our enemy. But at the same time, 
He exposes our impulse to try to disqualify those we disagree with as our neighbors, to wiggle ourselves out of the commandment that our Lord has issued to us. Now, Jesus does not choose any of the identities of the characters in the parable by accident. So let's consider them one by one. First, the victim. By saying that the man is making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus is counting on his audience identifying him as one of them, a Jew. Why else would he be coming from Jerusalem? Surely this man, the victim, is our neighbor. He is one of us, and, it, and he is in need of loving help. We're told in verse 30, he's half dead. And now by chance, a priest is coming along. <laughs> well, good luck. If you ever doubt Jesus has a sense of humor, by chance is precious. But you see, the problem here is that the religious leaders of the time could not, would not touch a dead body. And the man being half dead means that it was likely difficult to tell whether he was dead or alive, from a distance anyways. So the priest has a choice to make, and he chooses to cling to his legalism, his tight interpretation of the law. He does not want to risk being made unclean by a dead body. Numbers 19 tells us he would be considered unclean for seven days. He'd have to purify himself. It's a drag. Better be safe. Walk on by on the other side of the path. The priest clings to his own righteousness, derived from a strict obedience to the letter of the law. He refuses to risk the uncleanness of the man and would rather condemn him to death. He's probably dead already, right? Why bother? It could impact me. Someone might come along and think me unclean. So he walks on. Now in verse 32, a Levite comes along, also a religious person. The Levites were assistants to the priests. Same result. He moves on to the other side of the street and walks on. Now it's conceivable that there was a real threat that the robbers would come back but Jesus sets it up in a way that the most religious people around, whatever their specific motivations, put themselves first. Their safety, their righteous standing, their moral superiority over the person in need. And now when the third person comes along, now Jesus is deliberately poking the hornet's nest. Who's next? Verse 33. A Samaritan. The Samaritans were the most loathed people among the Israelites at the time. There was a sharp disagreement, a split between the two peoples, and the Samaritans set up their own temple, rivaling the one in Jerusalem from which this man was just coming down. And they set it up in Samaria. In fact, Jesus and his disciples just came from a Samaritan village at the end of Luke 9, the chapter preceding the, our passage. And the Samaritans there in Luke 9 sharply rejected Jesus. And we read that John and James responded to this rejection in Luke 9, verse 54. They said to Jesus, Lord, 
do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55 says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. But you get a good sense here of the level of conflict between the Israelites and the Samaritans, right? Jesus' own disciples are like, can we just burn them to the ground? Let them burn. The relationship between Israelite and Samaritan that Jesus chooses in this parable is not accidental, and it is not dissimilar from the current state of the relationship between the evangelical church and the LGBTQ movement. There's no common ground, and there's no trust. And yet, the parable puts all that aside and makes it clear that religious tribalism, moral legalism, stand in the way of the fundamental commandment to love our neighbor. The one who demonstrates that he knows how to love his neighbor is the one who has none of these notions of self-righteousness. Jesus dispels any loophole the lawyer might wish to take advantage of. It's clear the Samaritan is the one worth emulating. So Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. So, are people with whom we disagree sharply our neighbors? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly. And I also want to note that the parable makes it clear that our neighbors are not the people we seek. They're not the people that we have a tendency to go and hang out with, but the people we encounter. The people who, in his providence, God places on our path. You see that, right? Let me say this as delicately as I can. If you have not encountered any members of the LGBTQ community in this day and age, in this particular part of the world, if you've never come across a gay man, a lesbian couple, a teenage boy or girl struggling with gender dysphoria who identifies as non-binary, then I want to suggest it's possible that you're leading an insular lifestyle. And if that's the case, maybe you have removed yourself from the community in which you live. If you do not consider yourself to have any LGBTQ neighbors, just ask yourself, are you placing your lamp under a basket and potentially robbing your Father who is in heaven of his glory? Before I push this issue too hard, let's move on to the next question. Three, what does it actually mean to love our neighbor? To answer this question, I want to, to consider two extremities. Because loving your neighbor is a spectrum. So from the one end, confrontation. The other end, affirmation. So on the first end of the spectrum, does loving your neighbor mean confronting them with the hard truth, like staging an intervention. Well, maybe, but that's not something you do with a stranger. This is certainly the extreme end of the spectrum. I don't see Jesus modeling such a simplistic behavior in the Bible. Let's just say he washes more feet than he flips tables. In most situations, our Lord 
sought to sit down, break bread, discuss. Not changing his mind, he remained steadfast, but often, not always, but often, causing those who interacted with him to lay down their lives, turn away from their sin, repent, and follow him. What about the other end of the spectrum? Does loving your neighbor mean affirming them in their sinful state apart from Christ? This is certainly what the world expects of us. And from what I've experienced, you may feel the same way, it's not just the speed of the change of worldly expectations, but the sweeping swing that has taken place. What I mean by that is that we've seen a steep and rapid slide on what is an acceptable response, an evolution of society's demands of us from coexistence. Remember those bumper stickers, coexist? Then it was tolerance, that was the buzzword. Then it quickly became acceptance, and now it's celebration. So while our view may not have changed, the perception and reception of our view has changed dramatically. What society expects of us is nothing less than celebration, which is an extreme version of affirmation. But let's consider what Christ expects for us. For that, let's go back and hear from him. And I want to go back to Matthew 5. And this time, look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus is quoted here. And he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. These are Jesus' words. And I want to make sure we hear just how striking they are. His commandment here is in no way permissive or affirming. He takes the sexual laws on lust, adultery, and divorce. Does he loosen them? No, he tightens them. He doesn't lower the bar. He raises the bar way, way higher. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is probably very familiar to a lot of us, but we must never lose sight of how counterintuitive and how countercultural it is. These are red letters. You can follow Jesus or you can reject him. But if you are going to follow him, then this is who he is. You cannot say you follow him and then say he is anyone other than this. Jesus is Jesus in the Bible. There is no other. His life, his ministry on earth was documented in this book right here. There are other historical records of him, but this is his official biography, complete with witness accounts and cross-referenced records of his own sermons and teachings. Sam Albury, in his book, Is God Anti-Gay?, has been very helpful in my thinking here. He says, based on the modern view of Jesus, you might expect Jesus to say something like, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, love is love. 
based on an unbiblical understanding of Jesus and his teachings, you might expect him to lower the bar. Lower the bar of the law to make it easier to clear. But we do not worship a whitewashed Jesus. We do not worship a Disneyfied Jesus. We do not worship a rebranded Jesus carefully made over for our modern day sensitivities. We worship the one and only Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Alpha and the Omega. And what Jesus does is the complete opposite of what our modern day feelings cry out for. He says, if you even think about sex in any other context than within the covenant of your own marriage between one man and one woman, you are in sin. He raises the bar so high, no one clears it. So whether you're Christian or visiting today, or whether you identify as a member of the LGBTQ community, I want you to hear this point. Thanks, that should do it. (laughs) (laughs) Because this right here is where I'm convinced all the animosity comes from. Jesus makes it impossible for Christians or anyone else to feel self-righteous and judge non-Christians. This is the crux of the whole situation we are in. We behave like Christians are on one side of the line, and the LGBT community is on the other side, and Jesus says, no, there is no line. Jesus leaves no possibility for the Christian to say, well, I cleared the bar, but look at you. You can't make it over. So clearly, I am superior to you. No, 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 no. We are all just looking up, staring at an impossibly high bar, completely aware there is no way for us to clear it on our own. None is righteous. No, not one. Do we believe this, church? Jesus continues and lays out the consequences of sin. We need to believe he is warning us. We can't sidestep and act like it's for others and not us. Because in the following verses, Jesus doubles down and reinforces his point. He doesn't stutter. He forcefully, unblinkingly states the devastating consequences of our failure to measure up. The consequence is hell. And I know we would all love to rewrite this part and smudge over the H-bomb. But in our red-letter Bible passage, there it is. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, lover of sinners, suffering servant, warning that the consequence of sexual sin is to be thrown into hell. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Look, we who are in Christ are aware of our utter inability to clear that bar of righteousness. We're so aware of the death sentence it carries. 
And so we throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ and we confess our unrighteousness and repent of our unrighteousness and we pray that we would be forgiven of our unrighteousness and we pray that we would be grown out of our unrighteousness into righteousness. We acknowledge that all our feelings, our emotions, our impulses, our desires, our dreams, even our own conception of who we are, what defines our identity, all these things are worth Worse than worthless, they're evil. They're born out of an evil, selfish, sinful heart. And we must put all those things to death, lest they kill us. We must die to ourselves. Meaning we must be willing to give up every one of those things that define who we are. And let the Spirit of God rebuild us from the ground up. We must die and be reborn. Not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And this is only made possible because Jesus Christ took that death sentence of ours and was put to death for us. And he took that condemnation of ours and he went down into hell for us. He didn't do this just for you and me because we're special. He did this for each and every person who has ever lived and who will ever live. He did this so that anyone who turns to him and surrenders their lives to him will be saved from the righteous justice we deserve and be granted mercy. That is what happens when we become Christians. We know that it is not our own doing. So we do not look at our fellow sinners and condemn them for their inability to clear the bar. We want them to know there is a better way that Jesus will lift them over that bar. All they have to do is let go of their lives, let go of their identities, let go of who they are and embrace a new life, a new identity, and a new birth in Christ. Anyone can do that. We want everyone to know that if we can do that, then surely they can. If I, who am the worst of sinners, can do this, anyone can. So if you haven't done so already, know that you can do that in the quiet of your own heart. You can call upon Christ and deliver yourself over to him. We as a church family, pray that you would do so. It's our greatest desire because we can't walk on by on the other side of the street and turn a blind eye to our neighbor being condemned to death. We will not affirm a behavior that will lead to death. We cannot lead anyone we are called to love into believing that sin is consequence-free. We cannot imply or let anyone believe that we think it's safe. It's not. Embracing sin, unrepentantly living in sin is not just risky. It's certain death. And we must keep this in mind if we're asked to celebrate pride, to participate in an LGBTQ event at work invited to a gay wedding or to address someone in their chosen pronouns, can my participation be viewed as affirmation? We do not lay stumbling blocks for others. The consequences are too dire. The cost to our Savior was too high. And if we cannot affirm 
I want you to hear this also. Nor can we judge our neighbors in their sinful state apart from Christ. If this isn't made clear by Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, then hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read this passage quickly. 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 9 down to 13. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In this letter to the church in Corinth about sexual sin within the church, he calls out fellow Christians. But you heard verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul makes it clear that we judge those who are in the church, not those without. If you're in Christ and consider MABC your church, then you are part of the body of Christ here in Georgetown. We are brothers and sisters bound together by the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We're bound in our submission to Christ. We'll be reaffirming that shortly as we take communion together. And as a body, we're set up in a way to encourage each other in our faith walk, to spur each other on in our growth into the image of Christ. Church membership is important. It's meaningful. It's actually essential to the life of the Christian because we agree to be in each other's business, to watch and to know each other, to speak into each other's lives. So if I were to come to you and ask that you now refer to me by the pronouns she, her, you should categorically reject my request. You should rebuke me and call me to repentance. For I would be rejecting my commitment to a biblical view of sexuality. And if I refuse to do so, I should rightly be excommunicated from this body. That is what Paul says in this passage in verse 11. I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. But anyone who is not part of the church, who is not Christian, who does not profess Christ, cannot be excommunicated. They're never part of the body to begin with. Your neighbors, those outside the church, who may be your family members and closest friends, they find themselves in a sinful state the way we all did prior to accepting Christ and his call on our life. They're apart from Christ. Our neighbor's greatest need is not to change their lifestyle. Their greatest need is to know Christ. And it's our job to introduce them to the love of Christ. Because God loved us while we were yet enemies. We and our LGBTQ neighbors are not at war. There is a war raging, though. The seed of the woman is fighting the seed of the snake. When I was in Edmonton last summer, there was a man doing street evangelism, preaching the gospel on the corner of Jasper Avenue and 109th Street. And after a few minutes, he was approached by a young woman who was waving a flag. 
set out to disrupt his preaching. What caught my eye most of all was the flag she was waving. It was a rainbow flag, but it had a dark inscription in the center of it I hadn't seen before. The inscription was of a goat head with the words, the satanic temple on it. Do I believe this young woman worships the devil? I believe she knows not what she's doing. But her opposition to evangelical Christianity is so strong, she's willing to pledge her allegiance to our greatest foe. And make no mistake, the devil is as much her enemy as ours. Our enemy is not this lost soul. She is what the battle is raging over. We and our neighbors are all what the spiritual forces are fighting over. Our allegiance is not to the forces of opposition to the LGBTQ movement. Our allegiance is not to some sort of religious morality or just society or some denomination or tribe. Our allegiance is simply to Christ. And I understand the anxiety is real, but we cannot lose sight of our individual neighbors being obscured by the vast movement that is claiming to speak on their behalf. So what are we to do? Over and over, the Bible is clear on our role. Steadfastness, faithfulness, hold fast to the word of God. Hold on to God's promises in the midst of all the shifting cultural demands on us. Cling to the rock of ages. Stay focused on God's promises. We don't need to take part in any culture war. That's not our war. As for the spiritual war, it's already been won for us. It's a huge relief to me. I don't want to fight in any war. We just need to remain steadfast in our faith, to not be swayed or intimidated or tricked into believing that there is any higher authority over our lives than Christ and his word. And we need to obey the command to love our neighbor. That one is non-negotiable. We are tasked with inviting our neighbors into the church. We need to get to know our neighbors, to lovingly invite them into our life so that we may be invited into theirs so that we may understand their circumstances, their beliefs, their assumptions and presuppositions, whatever their beliefs are based on, the barriers that they've built up to the possibility of faith. We need to get to know our neighbors in their individual circumstances and see them not as members of the LGBTQ community, but as image bearers of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. If First World War soldiers can come together across no man's land to celebrate the birth of Christ together. We who are reborn in Christ can reach out across the divide to our lost brothers and sisters and invite them into our family. After all, following Christ is costly for all, but we gain Christ. We gain the family of Christ. We need to show our neighbors the joy and the beauty of life in Christ and war and condemnation and judgment are not beautiful. But the gospel is. These are deeply personal.
personal, sensitive, touchy matters. This is not a case for bullhorn evangelism, but for true love, hospitality, friendship, reaching across the no man's land, risking the shelling, the bullets, and inviting them to join us on our side. The air raid sirens will continue. The bombings will not cease. But there is no need to enlist in that fight. Our mission is to convince all our neighbors to abandon the battlefield with us altogether with a promise of peace, to introduce them to our Savior who makes us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters, who restores our soul, who leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please remove any anxiety we may have and open us up to true Christian love for our neighbors. Grant us opportunities to come to know them and point them to you and give them a reason for the hope that is within us. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a city on a hill, that our light would go out from this place as a reflection of your glory and as a reflection of the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.